The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. All right, if you have your Bibles, we're looking at uh, Mark chapter 1. I said last time that the Gospel of Mark is really like, um, it's action. There's not a lot of teaching, not near as much as the other Gospels, but there's lots of, of action, and it's really meant to be like, almost like a slideshow of Jesus. <clears throat> over 20, actually I think it's over 38 mentions of the word immediately. So we're constantly getting, immediately we go to these different scenes, and some weeks we're going to more speed up and kind of look at at kind of like going across the lake and looking at the, the scenery, and other times it'll be like next week, we'll just drill down on the leper, and it'll be more like looking at a glass-bottom boat and, and examining the text that way, that way. But this week is really more, I want to give you seven scenes, seven snapshots in the life of Jesus. And, and if you look at verse 21 of this text, you can see that it's the Sabbath, Okay. On the Sabbath, he enters the synagogue. And then when you get to verse 35, it's very early in the morning of the next day. So really, you're getting a scene of, in 24 hours, in less than 24 hours, between 21 and 34, of a day in the life of Jesus. What was it like? What would it have been like to have been around Jesus for a day? Well, let's take a look. Here we go. So beginning at verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee... Now, keep in mind, he was in Nazareth before, okay? And that would have been more west. And now he's at the very top of the Sea of Galilee, the very northern tip. And this was a, uh, a quaint fishing village of about 1,500 people. But it was doing pretty well financially. Uh, the salt fish uh, was a pretty, you know, they stored it with salt, and it was a pretty popular selling item. And these people made a pretty good living uh, in Galilee. So keep in mind, not in Jerusalem, that would be like a, over a hundred miles down to the south, a little bit to the west. We're way up north, okay? And a hundred miles or so at least, and we're in Galilee. So that's where Jesus' home base, headquarters, five disciples called from Galilee, right? Two sets of, tw- two sets of brothers, and w- which are here, and then also Matthew. So let's Here we go in Galilee. Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, And he cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the 
Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. All at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. The whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, casting out demons. Let's pray together. Father, make us hungry for the Word of God. Pray that you would open our mouths wide and that you would fill it. Pray that we would taste and see that you are good. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to draw out these seven scenes for you this morning. And as we kind of go through these scenes, I want you to first see that the very first scene, well, just as far as an outline goes this morning, I want you to see uh, the king's declaration because it's the king. To say, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, the king has to be there to have a kingdom. And so first of all, you see the king's declaration. Then we see, and that's verse 14 and 15. Then you have the king's disciples, and we see who he chooses, verses 16 to 20. And then we have the king's dominion, and that's not an amusement park. That's verses 21 to 34. And then the king's decision in verses 35 to 39. Or if you like peas, the king's proclamation is verses 14 to 15. The king's people is verses 16 to 20. The king's power, 21 to 34 and the king's prayer and priority. Scene one, the king's declaration, the proclamation, is that Jesus has come, and he has said the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Repent and believe in the gospel. And what we see as we kind of work through this chapter, and we're kind of getting this overview is by the end of this passage, within 24 hours, what do you have? You have everybody all around at his door. Are they repenting and believing? No. Jesus has become now, the priority has become quickly all about the goodies, all about the benefits. And so everybody's lined up at his door to get a healing. And Jesus has to shift gears, change plans, and and you're getting the first conflict in the Gospels between Jesus and the disciples, which you'll have all throughout. And you you pick it up with Peter saying, everybody's looking for you. Like, 
This is it, man. Everybody has lined up at the door, and you're over there. Where were you? You're over here praying? And now you want to go, and then he says, we're going to go somewhere else. Like, it instantly has to, like, what's going on here? And what we're going to see is that when he calls us to repent and believe, it's both the door and it's the path, right? It's, it's both. You repent and believe, that's how you become a believer. It's the two sides of a coin. You have to see that you're the problem, he's the solution. So you're the problem, repent. Solution is believe in him, he's the good news, he's come to save you. But then he's also the path. And how quickly we want to turn Jesus and use Jesus for our purposes. And so Jesus is already having to direct the conversation differently by the end of a few verses here. Within 24 hours, the whole community is lined up. And it doesn't say anything about them repenting or believing. But he's, he's attracting a lot of people. So I want to ask you this morning, is Jesus for you more of a vending machine? More of a UPS driver or the... Amazon driver who brings you, he delivers the goods. He brings it to your door. And you don't have to wait for him. <laughs> he, he delivers on time. Then 24 hours, he just, boom, it just shows up and bang, it's exactly what I wanted. Or is he Lord of your life where you accept from him both the good and the difficult? You see this, I mean, Jesus' first words out of his mouth, scene one, 18 English words, 15 in the Greek. It's not a long sermon, is it? There's no Old Testament quotes. There's nothing from the Pentateuch here, nothing from the Psalms, nothing from the prophets. He's just saying, I've come. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news the good news of the gospel. I just recently watched the movie Persuasion with Karis and Kim, and we were, uh, it was in interesting how these Jane Austen movies kind of play out, but the, the antagonist of sorts in this one, spoiler alert, <laughs> if you haven't seen it, but it is a guy that a couple times he says that he's really serious about keeping his inheritance. And in the end, he marries a woman that it's more about, it's all about her wealth, not about the woman. And you're like, what a loser, because he loves this woman because she's the ticket to his inheritance. And we say that's not a, a worthy love. And you watch the movie and you, you get a distaste for this guy as it grows on, like, this guy's a loser. <laughs> well... Aren't we like that with Jesus a lot of times? Is that we want him for the inheritance. We want him for the, the ticket out of here. You can have all this world, just give me fire insurance, give me, give me heaven, take me out. But do we want him so that we can be a blessing now to others? And that we want him because he's beautiful, not just for his benefits. He's beautiful and not just useful, that we truly love him. And 
That's what Jesus is getting at with this idea of repent and believe. Because it isn't interesting that when he says repent and believe, I mean, he doesn't, it's all about him. There's, I mean, there isn't anything here about seven ways to improve your, your marriage, seven principles for Christian money management, seven ways for, to be a highly effective leader, seven ways to live your potential. Is there any of that in his message? It's all about king and kingdom, and it has nothing, it really, it, what about me? And that's the point, repent. <laughs> repent and believe the gospel, it's not about you. And though he doesn't quote the Old Testament, this is the whole Old Testament. When he says the kingdom is at hand, I mean, Daniel 2.44 just tells us there's going to be these, these different kingdoms that are going to come. Right? There's a kingdom that's described as a head and a chest and then legs and then these feet. And it says, in those days the, of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it, the kingdom, shall stand forever. So Daniel 2.44 has just been fulfilled at Mark 1.15. It's now broken through in time, space, and history, and a new whole era has begun. It's the kingdom of God has broken into this world. It's what was prophesied in the old and now has come to be. And so for us to enter the kingdom, the two wings of the dove, as Thomas Watson says, whereby we fly into heaven, are repentance and faith. They're two sides of the same coin. You can't just say, well, I believe, because who are the people that believe and identify Jesus? Isn't it interesting that when people see Jesus all throughout the Gospel of Mark, the people say something like, Master, Rabbi, Teacher, Son of David. But when the demons see the Son of God, they see things, say things like, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You're the Son of God. You're the Holy One of God. They are the first ones. They know who He is much better than any professor, most of the professors that you're going to sit under in college someday, young people. The demons know. And they shudder, we're told in James 2. They believe. But it doesn't save them because it's a dead faith. It doesn't have the double coin. It doesn't have any repentance. Do you see any repentance of this demon here? There's, there's dread, there's despair, but there is no faith of saving faith. And so saving faith just doesn't, doesn't say, well, okay, I admit that you're God. It leads to a changed life. It's, it's about living for the king and no longer living for self. And that's what we see when he says repent and believe. We see in scene two what that means. It means leave and follow. These people left everything and followed Jesus. So then we get to the second scene here, scene two, verses 16 to 20, and we see the king's disciples of the king's people. And Jesus' ministry begins in humble places with humble beginnings. I mean, he comes and says the kingdom of God is at hand. And what do you think is going to happen? I mean, if you hadn't read any of the Gospels and you hear that the kingdom of God is at hand, you're thinking, what's going to be next? 
Is there going to be sky riding across the sky? Is Jesus going to go flying across the sky and just put out his hands and soar across the sky? Is there going to be great impressive miracles? Is he, does he go to Jerusalem and does he gonna, who's going to be his recruits? Is, will it be the Pharisees? Will he, will he choose scribes? Will he choose priests or elders? He doesn't choose any of them. He just goes to this humble place called Capernaum to this fishing village, and his first four recruits are two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John. The one minute, James and John, I mean, they're, they're running Zebedee Fishing Enterprises, LLC, and the next minute, they're out of business. They just leave everything and follow him. Jesus, and this is what R.T. France, his commentary is really good on Mark. He says this, the Messiah himself refuses to assert his authority by an impressive show of divine pomp and pageantry. The kingdom of God comes not with fanfare, but through the gradual gathering of a group of socially insignificant people in an unnoticed corner of Galilee. How does that help you and me? It helps a lot, because there's not many noble, not many mighty he cares for the common people. He cares for you and me. We're not all that impressive. And so Jesus comes to these fishermen and he's going to use them to change the world. These aren't the elites or educated. They're just fishermen. You see, in Jesus' day, you got to pick your rabbi. If you wanted to follow on, learn his teaching. And matter of fact, we, we discover that Andrew must have picked John the Baptist because in John 1, 35 to 42, we're told about two disciples that John just turns over and says, you know, behold, there's the Lamb of God, takes away the sins of the world, and he turns to them, and he's kind of doing a little discipleship. And then it says, and one of them, we're told, is Andrew. And what is Andrew? First thing he does, he goes and gets his brother. But Andrew was clearly a disciple of John. And so, but Jesus doesn't do what the rabbis do. He doesn't play that game. He picks his own disciples. He still does. He says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. John 15, 16. He says, follow me <clears throat> and I'll make you become fishers of men. It's a process. He's going to change us. And we laugh when <clears throat> at the Godfather, the, the line where Classic line is, I'm making you an offer. Make him an offer he can't refuse. You know, or I'm making you an offer you can't refuse. And it really wasn't an offer, was it? <clears throat> it was a demand at the threat of death because this guy, you got to kiss the ring or you're in big trouble with the mafia. Well, Jesus is just the opposite. Jesus is good. And he's making things wrong <clears throat> and making them right. And he's making us an offer we can't refuse because he works in us by his spirit. And he's beautiful in what he's doing. And it's good and it's righteous. Not like the mafia. And so we see that Jesus is up to something. And he's choosing these disciples. <clears throat> well then he's going to show us <clears throat> excuse me, his power. This is where we get the king's dominion. Or the king's power in verses 21 to 34, we get scenes 3 to 5. And scenes 3 and 4 both take place in the synagogue. And keep in mind, when we say synagogue, we don't mean temple. 
This is a city of 1,500 people, but it would have a local little assembly hall, which was a synagogue. Probably not a very big building. And in the synagogue, they would do a lot of things that we do today. They read the scriptures, and they would pray. But there's definitely a lot of the reading of the Torah. And so there's this reading, and Jesus starts to teach. And they are astonished at his teaching. As one who had authority. And that's our first picture of Jesus as he's bringing in the kingdom. Is the first thing that it's noted with as he teaches different than other teachers. And you keep in mind, what does a prophet do? prophet brings the word of God and they say things like, thus saith the Lord. There's authority. There has not been a prophet in Israel in over 400 years. That would be like us saying there hasn't been a playwright since Shakespeare died in 1616. Like, it's been 400 years. You know, that's a long time. There hasn't been prophecy in 400 years. So it literally, when it says they're, ast- they're astonished, it literally means driven out of one's senses. Or as we would say, blown away. I mean, they're just astounded. They're aghast. They're, they're, they're amazed. He's totally unlike the rehashing and rereading that the scribes did of these other teachers. It's fresh, it's new, and they know that it has authority. But then the authority is immediately backed up with a power encounter. We get uh, truly good versus evil, our first showdown. And notice how three times, what is this spirit called? It's called an unclean spirit in verse 26. It's called an unclean spirit in verse 27. Um, And it's called an unclean spirit in verse 23. So three times it's called an unclean spirit. And yet what does the spirit say about Jesus? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So clearly we have good versus evil. And that's what Mark is trying to to get us to see is that there's, there's an interesting showdown that's happening here. And we know that all throughout the Gospels here is what C.S. Lewis says, that what Christ has done is, is we're in enemy-occupied territory, that's what this world is, Lewis says, and Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise, and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. And Jesus says about this kingdom that he's bringing in, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Has the kingdom of God come upon us? <laughs> He's dry. He comes in. And listen, we don't have like demons around the corner like this today. Like this is an all-out attack. And even when you get to later on in, in you know, in Acts and then the rest of the epistles, you don't, you don't have all these power encounters like you do in the Gospels. Either do you have it in the Old Testament. There's something unique going on here is that Satan is launching an all-out attack. He just lost round one last week when he tried to tempt him in the wilderness for 40 days. And Luke and Matthew will draw that account out of three times these different temptations, and each time Jesus quotes from the Deuteronomy, and he's holding on to the word and tells Satan to, to get lost, basically. To, and he loses round one. Well, this is round two. Now, all of these demons are going to be like, a, you know, on the forefront, and, and this is what you would call a knowledge attack. And so the idea is, is that the demon 
is launching this knowledge attack. It's like, if I know who you are, I can control you. And so he's, Satan has lost round one. And so now Satan's going side door, bringing in some reinforcements to try to overpower him. And Jesus rebukes him and says, literally, be muzzled. It's the same words that he uses at the storm when he tells the wind and the waves to be still, be muzzled. And Jesus you know, can stop wind and waves. He can also do this to demons. He can tell them to, to zip it, be quiet. And the demon comes out and they're all amazed. And what are they amazed? Because they say, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And so what do we learn from this? Is that we learn like we're no match for demons, right? I mean, this, the, the people in, in the gospels, they know what the difference is between someone who has mental illness and someone who's demon-possessed. There are different words for, for each. And they clearly recognize this man has a demon. And the person doesn't speak at all. It's the demon speaking because the demon has overpowered him. You're no match for the demon, right? But the demons are no match for Jesus. You see, and that's what we're told, that's the beauty of the gospel, is greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Or the reflection verses tell us that, that if we're in him, the evil one can't touch us. 1 John 5, 18 to 21 is this wonderful truth of what it means to be in Jesus. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But now as you come to know him, you are set free. And so demons can't separate us at the last day from the love of Christ. And so we see that, that Colossians 2.15 that we read in the worship service is that Jesus has disarmed rulers and authorities. What do you mean disarmed them? Like, if you disarm somebody, what have you done? I mean, they had a weapon. They had something powerful, could have killed me, but I disarmed him. I took away, you know, I took it away. You know, it's like the guy in, in, in the book of, of Samuel. You know, it goes down, the guy's got a spear, he wrestles the spear out of his hand and then kills the guy. I mean, that's pretty impressive stuff, right? Well, we're just told about Jesus that he disarmed, he took away the weapons of the devil, rulers and authorities, by making a public display of them, having triumphed over them, where our debts were our wrongdoings. That's just another word for transgression, a fresh word to let you know we're wrongdoers by nature. And we got this debt, and the debt is the enemy's weapon that he shoots at us. It's called condemnation. You're no good. You're a sinner. And Jesus said, he's disarmed that. I paid the debt. I took that debt. It was nailed to a cross. He's high and lifted up, we just sang about. And we love that song, he's high and lifted up. How is he high and lifted up? You know, we got these three crosses and one's a little higher than the others, but he's, he's on a cross at the garbage heap. It's the most shocking display of like, this is how he's going to be lifted up and he's going to draw all men to himself. This is what God does. And in doing so, the demons lose. They've lost. Jesus has come. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, 8, that's what we're seeing here. And so, verse 3 and 4 are these scenes of amazement and wonder of the authority of Jesus. Well, we see in verse 37, this was news. And people didn't have Twitter, they didn't have, t they didn't have live video, they couldn't TikTok this thing, they couldn't Instagram it to all their friends. But let me tell you, news spread. It spread so fast that no, the sun went down. 
We're, we're, you know, you get the scene and, and the sun has gone down. It's sundown, verse 32, Sabbath is over. And, all the, and they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. I mean, that, I don't know if any of you all have seen The Chosen. I know some of it's embellished. And, but the scene where, where Jesus is exhausted because of doing all of this healing, is the, I think they're, they're on to something there. He's exhausted. I mean, all these people are lined up for him to heal everybody. And so they're all lining up at the door. And so now we get this idea that all these people are now coming to Jesus. And so, but before that, I, I jumped over the one, is that he's got to heal the mother-in-law first. And so I, I jumped over scene five. Let's go back there for a second. What's impressive about this miracle is that it's so normal in the sense of like, what's so impressive? Like you're bringing the kingdom in and you're going to heal somebody who has a fever? Like, does that seem like what you would write to like, is that, what's so special about that? Well, what's special is that's really what happened. Is that they get back to, to Andrew and Simon's house, or they, they get back there and we're told that um, they tell Jesus about Simon's uh, mother-in-law, Leo, with a fever, verse 30. They told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand, lifted her up, and the fever left her. And, we're, and Luke, being the doctor, he told us that it's a mega fever, a megalo fever, a great fever. This thing was big. She's probably, no doubt, she's got sweating profusely. She's in sad shape. She's debilitated by this fever. And she's, you know, realistically, they didn't have, they didn't have Tylenol back then. And so within five seconds... She's instantly healed, and then she's serving them. Like, after you have a fever, how do you usually feel for the, like, next two days? <laughs> You're usually kind of woozy, you know, kind of like recovering from COVID. It takes a little while to recover. Not Peter's mother-in-law. Instantly. She's instantly healed. And it's just done in the home. And instantly, it says, she got up and began to serve others. And I think that's a pretty good theme for us, is that Jesus instantly turns us outward to others. If you've been touched by Jesus, you experience his redemption through re repentance and faith, then we begin to follow his footsteps because he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We can't give our life as a ransom for many. Like he did, he, he, I can't just say, oh, I'm going to pay for your sin. You, you can't do that. You've got to be perfect. Any of you perfect? <laughs> We're not perfect, so it doesn't count. The, the priests were always offering sacrifices. They were never good enough because they had to offer them first for themselves. So we can't offer our life as a ransom for many, but we can live a life of service. And that's what this Peter's mother-in-law instantly, it becomes normal and natural to think of others rather than self. And so we get this picture of Jesus. And we're told about Jesus, you know, as you take this all in, about his authority is that Jesus is Lord. And what's impressive about that is that that's the idea of Yahweh in the Old Testament. It's the idea that he commands and he expects obedience. He's the, when he says he teaches with authority, it's like he's the final interpreter. He's the interpreter of reality. He's the creator. He's the redeemer. He's the one over all things. He's over 
all, that's, all that you can't see in heaven, all these heavenly, he's, he's the Lord over everything, over all the galaxies that you've never seen. He's over them. All the fish that you've never seen in the ocean. He's over everything. He's the Lord. And so he commands and expects obedience, and he just says in Luke 6.46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Like, if he's Lord, that means we have to yield obedience to him. We have to follow him. And so that's what you're seeing, is that Jesus commands obedience from us, his followers, that we're to follow him. And so what we're going to see throughout the rest of the gospel is that this idea of authority, that this Roman centurion, he says, uh, Jesus' authority to heal, he's, he, 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 he compares it with his own military authority. You know, I tell one to do this and he does that, so just, just say the word and, and this person will be healed. And, and Jesus is like, yeah, I, such faith. He's amazed by this. He's saying he doesn't see faith like that in Israel. And that Jesus can say to the winds and the sea, be still, and they're, they're stilled. And then he says to this man that's dropped down through the ceiling, which we're going to see in a few weeks, that he says, your sins are forgiven. And then he says, rise and pick up your bed and go home. And they say, well, who do you think you are? You can't. Who can forgive sins but God alone? He has the authority to do that, to forgive sins. So Jesus does all these things. And so now everybody's coming to him. And he doesn't have a sign out in front of his door that just says closed. And it says, you know, Alpha's hours, 9 to 5, you know, and then you try and call and you get an automatic, you know, voice message that says, if this is an emergency, please hang up and call 911, you know. <laughs> and, or, you know, if, if it's not an emergency, please leave a detailed message with your phone number so that we can return your call at our first opportunity. Thank you, you know. Beep, you know. <laughs> We've all gotten those before, right? Well, Jesus was the hospital. He was the 911. And he lays his hands on many of these people and heals them. And he has pity on people. He has power. He's merciful and he's mighty. He's sympathetic and he's sovereign. He's compassionate and all controlling. He has empathy and authority. He's full of grace and truth. We see Jesus as this beautiful picture of what it looks like. And so what you have here is the kingdom of God is breaking in. As C.S. Lewis says in his book, Miracles and All the Miracles Alike, the incarnate God does something and suddenly and locally something that God has done or will do in general. But each miracle writes for us in small letters something that God has already written or will write in letters almost too large to be noticed across the whole canvas of nature. What you're seeing is the kingdom of God is breaking in. And we see glory. But we see in this day and age, as this kingdom breaks in, it's an already not yet. And I think the miracle where, where God heals the guy that is blind and he says, can you see? And he says, I see men like trees walking. You know, we don't, sometimes we don't fully get it yet. He's got to do it some more. You know, we're seeing the kingdom breaking in, but not in its fullness. Right? So Michael Sinney gets healed. Chris Marcantonio gets healed. But Kathy Sinney's singing voice didn't get healed yet. Mike Nola's eyesight hasn't been healed yet. Juanita's juvenile arthritis hasn't been healed yet. But it will. It's coming. 
and you're getting a snapshot of what it looks like, and we, we see it breaking in now, and we see some amazing things. I was just rehashing with Chris this morning, you know, that what, praise God, he's alive, you know. He raised him up. But not everybody gets that. Johnny Erickson Tata brings more glory to God in her condition. And when she speaks, people listen. And in her condition, that she broke her neck when she was a teenager, diving into the Chesapeake Bay, and she still speaks. And her life has been hard. But her books are precious. When she speaks, it's precious. She glorifies, I mean, as the kingdom breaks in, it, it just often doesn't look like what we are expecting. It looks like waiting sometimes. It looks like weakness sometimes. It, it looks like different than we expected. Did it look like Jesus was going to be high and lifted up on a cross? Did, did it, it look like Peter bringing 3,000 people to Jesus? Now there's the kingdom, but it doesn't look like Stephen getting 3,000 stones in the next sermon, right? It looks like Peter, they pray and he gets delivered from prison, but right before it, James gets killed by the sword. It Did one have faith and one not? I mean, that's the idea of Hebrews 11, is, it, is what does faith look like? And as it breaks in, we're told at the end of Hebrews 11, it says about these people who through faith conquered kingdoms, they enforced justice, they obtained promises, they stopped the mouths of lions, they quenched the power of fire, they escaped the edge of the sword, they were made strong out of weakness, they became mighty in war, they put armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. I mean, yeah, yeah, great. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in sheeps of, uh, skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. It, are we still hurrah? I mean, both by faith. You get A or B. But it wasn't like less faith of either. They're both saying, by faith. Some get delivered and some don't, but we bring glory to God in that. And so as Jesus is bringing the kingdom, what we want you to see here is that the priority is on the preached word. The miracles will verify the authority. But Jesus doesn't come like P.T. Barnum to have a circus. And he has the circus by drawing a crowd, by bringing in Interesting people, you know, the Siamese twins or the super large giants or the very little people. And, you know, he brought in all the, you know, and, and here all the people are lined up at Jesus' door and, he's, and he goes to prayer and he's saying, my priority is to preach and to pray. And as he's praying, his priorities are realigned and now he's realizing this is, there's the henna clause. The henna clause is, he says, let us go to the other towns in order that I may preach there also. There's the purpose statement, right in the middle of verse 38. And that I may preach there also. That's why he came. This is why I've come. The priority is on preaching. Because if he doesn't save the soul, he can't save the body. And there's a priority. And so his mission is bigger than, because you can get healed, but you're still going to die. Even Lazarus still had to die again. And so Jesus' priority it doesn't mean he doesn't do miracles. He does. He verifies it. But he's realizing, I can't just stick to one town and be a one-trick pony where everybody just comes to my door. And now they're just coming to get healed. Or people just follow Jesus because they, they get fed with the loaves and fishes. 
his priority is to preach. And so I would say for us, as we think about Jesus in verses 35 to 39, it should say some things to us. Where should our priorities be? Preaching and prayer. We need to pray for a cultivation of prayer throughout our whole church, that everything is cultivating prayer. Are we praying for the worship service? Are we expecting God to show up in the worship service? Are we praying for the preached word of God? You get what you pray for, so you're going to get out of today what you prayed for. And as you pray, God will meet you. And as you pray for God to move, he's going to move in our church. Pray for the small groups to have a cultivation of, that they would learn to pray for each other and that as certain needs come up that we would pray for each other, that we have a phone call and somebody has a need. Let me pray with you right now. As you hear about needs, let's stop and pray. You're in the pew and somebody tells you, let's pray, pray, pray. I mean, Jesus had to stop and pray and he's exhausted and yet he's getting up before 5 a.m. to go off in the dark to pray. So obviously it was more important than sleep. And it realigned his priorities to preach. And if Jesus preached and he's commissioned his church to preach, this is what J.C. Ryle says about preaching. He just says the church of God, by preaching the church of Christ was first gathered together and found it. By preaching it's ever been maintained to health and prosperity. By preaching sinners are awakened. By preaching inquirers are led on. By preaching saints are built up. By preaching Christianity is being carried to the heathen world. There are many who sneer at missionaries and mock at those who go out on the highways of our own land to preach to crowds in the open air. But such persons would do well to pause and consider calmly what they are doing. The very work which they ridicule is the work which turned the world upside down and cast heathenism to the ground. Above all, it's the very work which Christ himself undertook. The King of kings and Lord of lords himself was once a preacher. For three long years, he went to and fro proclaiming the gospel. Sometimes he went in a house, sometimes on the mountainside, sometimes in a Jewish synagogue, sometimes in a boat on the sea. But the great work he took up was always one and the same. He came always preaching and teaching. He says, that's why I've came, Mark 138. And so Jesus as a leader isn't captured by the tyranny of the urgent to let that rule his life. He's not going to be confined by the agenda of Peter that says, everybody's looking for you. Like, come on, let's get, let's get, a, let's get a move on with the show. And so Jesus is knowing that he must heal our souls as well as our bodies. And if he heals the soul, he's going to heal your body too. But C.S. Lewis put it like this, if you look, come to Jesus looking for truth, you're You may find comfort in the end, but if you look for comfort, you'll get neither, comfort or truth. And so for us this morning, it's getting back to our priorities. How do we grow a culture of prayer? And how do we prioritize that the preaching is important? You know this idea today of like preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. It's important that we do deed ministry. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that. It's pretty important because for the church to testify that it cares and it loves so it can have credibility to speak the word is important. But if we do not speak the word, then people will, it's a mystery. People will never know what we stand for. And ultimately what is going to change people's lives is the good news of the gospel that breaks in and begins to change lives. Is it changing yours? To change in mind. Because we're called to repent and to believe in the good news. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the king, head of your church.
All authority in heaven and earth has been given to you. And you've told us to go and make learners, make disciples. And may, be, may we be people that are growing, becoming fishers of men. Help us to be bringers, to be tellers. We pray that, Lord, you would work in our hearts, that the good news would bubble out and over to others. And that we would have compassion on the lost, compassion on those who don't know you. But there is a real judgment. There's a real heaven and a hell. And we pray that, Lord, the soberness of eternal realities would weigh upon us. And we pray that, Lord, we would see how incredible you are that you humbled yourself all the way for us to a cross to pay for our debt to silence the devil and the demons. We praise you for the triumph on the third day in the resurrection. We thank you that you didn't let your Holy One see corruption. We thank you that in your presence it's fullness of joy. May we know more of it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.